Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Down the years, you may have seen me on the telly or heard me on the wireless, but this is different. This is the Brian Taylor podcast brought to you by The Herald. Each week, we'll be examining the very latest in Scottish politics with the people who make and break the news. We'll hear expert analysis from The Herald's unrivaled political team, and I'll discuss the issues that matter to you with a veritable plethora of guests from all shades of opinion. Coming up, does she have a mandate to not, not, not next year? She doesn't year. have a mandate. She's a, she must be incredibly disappointed. I think the only way to really break the logjam is actually to have the referendum, and then, one way or another, that is it. And then politics can that, focus that is it. If the entirely lose, on that's it. it. We're also told that in 2014, though, Kevin. Hold on, hold on, hold on. So it's, I actually think we need to take this moment to look at how we do things. And if, if anything positive has come out of this pandemic, it's that we can be innovative when we have to be. Well, then, a very warm welcome to the latest edition of the Brian Taylor podcast with the Herald, uh, Parliament, Scottish Parliament, getting back into action, MSPs gathering for swearing in and taking the oath and all that sort of thing. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome a new member of the Scottish Parliament. That's uh, Pam Duncan-Glancy, the Labour MSP for Glasgow. Delighted to welcome the, uh, Rachel Hamilton, a returning Conservative MSP. Welcome to you too. And delighted to welcome to Kevin Pringle uh, of Charlotte Street Partners, but formerly a senior advisor to the SNP Scottish Government. But first and, and foremost, I'm delighted to welcome my colleague from the Herald, Alistair Grant. Alistair, Bring us up to speed with where we are on the, the, the return of Parliament, you know, taking the oath, getting getting going, getting started. Where are we on that one? Yes, we've obviously, I mean, just, just to recap, we've, we've had the election, obviously. Um, SNP came tantalisingly close to majority, but just fell one sheet, one uh, seat short uh, with 64 seats. Conservatives remained, you know, the, the biggest party in opposition, 31 seats, Labour on 22 seats, uh, the Greens on eight, which is a record for them, and the Lib Dems on four seats. So at the moment, we've just had, over the last couple of days, we've had... MSPs registering, just kind of getting to know the parliament, getting to know where their office is, where the cafeteria is, getting to know if the coffee's any good, all that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, and then Thursday and Friday, we'll have the kind of crucial election of the presiding officer of the Scottish Parliament and the deputy presiding officers on Friday. Uh, and then next week, you can expect Nicola Sturgeon to be kind of formally signed in as first minister and to unveil her, her cabinet. We're probably expecting a bit of a, a, bit of a reshuffle there. Well, there was the, about a third of the cabinet vanished, so that that's that's likely. Any any tips for presiding officer? I mean, presumably the SNP wouldn't be very keen to give one of their number up, given that they don't have a majority. Yeah, it's a difficult one. Just speaking to kind of different people in the parties today, and it seems to be a little bit of a deadlock at the moment because yeah. I think a lot of people are unwilling to give, give that kind of yes. seat away. Um, I think the name that's coming up most most often is Alison Johnson in the Greens. Ah, uh, speaking to a kind of source in the Green Party today, and they were sort of saying that she, she hasn't ruled herself out, but she's also got mm. reservations. And she's obviously yeah. one of, probably one of the more experienced MSPs in the Green Group. So I think losing her would be, you know, would be a bit of a, a, bit of a blow to them in some ways. And she might feel herself that she's got... Well-liked, though, and collegiate, maybe the sort of, you know, individual that would, would fit the bill. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and I think uh, other names that were coming up were Liz Smith and the Tories. I think she uh-huh. actually has ruled herself out now. Okay. Um, so I think Alison Johnson is definitely the one to watch, but... Yeah, it seems to be a bit of an impasse. The, the old reward inspection, uh, from my experience. Bring in Pam Duncan-Glancy. Pam, uh, first of all, congratulations upon your, your election. You, 
you must be delighted. The key question that, that, that Alistair raised there, what is the coffee like around the, the Holyrood campus? Well, um, thank you, first of all, and thank you for inviting me to join you all today. Um, the coffee is not bad, actually. I've only had right. two. Um, when I arrived yesterday morning, um, we were taken into a member's space for the start of our induction, and we got a coffee, and I kid you not, I had one sip, and then it started, and I had to leave it. So I was like, right, I'm going to need to get faster with my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> um, but today I'm pleased to report I've managed I've managed two, so we're all good. You've got yourself today. an office and you're ready to for the for, for, for the swearing in ceremony and all that sort of thing, ready to go. Absolutely, very much so. Yes, looking forward to it. Um, the office that we've got a temporary we've all been allocated temporary offices just now. Uh-huh. Um I, I quite like the one I'm in, so um, mm. maybe it will be permanent. And then yes, the swearing in ceremony. Looking forward to that. Um trying to think about something that I can do that's symbolic because um, I, I think I said. Um, previously that I can't I can't raise my hand with my palm facing out of the way oh, no. um, just because of my joints so yeah. um, I'm thinking of what else to do so I might have a wee a wee surprise up my sleeve for that oh my goodness oh, oh well, mm. well I, ho- I hope it hope it goes well for you it's 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 always a thought these sort of things Rachel Hamilton delighted to welcome you and many congratulations to you and being re-elected I mean I've, I've been covering politics forever but I suppose you you, you count as as, as as one of the the experienced team, given that you're you're not a, not a not a newbie like like some of the others. Yeah, I think it's uh, great, and thank you for the well wishes, Brian. I think it's great to see uh, new people on the block. It's going to shake things up a little bit in the Parliament. Yeah. And welcome to Pam, and and I've got uh, ten new colleagues as well, of course. And uh, I'm really looking forward to to working with them. I mean, we've just been working together over Zoom and uh, doing lots of. Uh, calls together in that way so it's been quite a strange and restrictive uh way to get to know our colleagues but I suppose um you know I'm really looking forward to tomorrow and uh I've um I've been looking for something to wear and obviously you know it's quite difficult the shops have only just opened but I'm gonna have to drag something out of the wardrobe Brian but my mother-in-law's very kindly given me a beautiful ancient Hamilton tartan sash for me to wear. So I'll be proudly wearing that tomorrow. And I'm hoping to do my uh, take my oath in Welsh because I'm actually Welsh. And I hear that a lot of people are uh, planning to to, um, do quite different things this time. Very good. Uh, well, uh, uh, Kevin Pringle, of course, you you and I will face this 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 problem being, you know, being the fashion icons that we we both are, but um, perhaps we, we can. We, let, let's. The, the Parliament is now getting back to business. So, with, with all of you now, Alistair, as well, let, let's get let's get down to business. And right away, there's, there's the, the the hideous business of this hideous plague um, beginning to relent, perhaps beginning to relent. But Kevin, the, the the Scottish government are warning: don't take it for granted. Don't don't just you know let let the liberalisation of lockdown rip. I think that's right. Um, there's obviously great. Um, I think we're just so much looking forward to just the sort of prospects of um, being able to to do things, to be able to rediscover some of our freedoms again. But I think very much tempered with that concern, um, particularly about new strains. And I think uh, it's been said so many times that you know nobody's safe until we're all safe, and that you know looking at it really on a global basis. But it, it simply is true because, of course, if there are strains that develop uh, to which we don't have immunity, to which our vaccines are, 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 are less effective, then obviously that can set back so much of the progress that we've made. So, so yeah, we're looking for, I think we're all feeling, you know, much more optimistic, much more upbeat about things. I think it's even very interesting, actually, just uh, just listening to, uh, to Pam and to Rachel, and congratulations to you both, just about you taking up your seats in Parliament. I get a, a kind of a sense almost of the 
um, excitement that you'll remember, Brian, surrounded the uh, the Parliament when it was uh, first uh, up and running in 1999, and that yeah. first uh, session in the in the opening days of that, but possibly because there are so many um, new. MSPs, there'd be such a high turnover of MSPs with so many standing down that there's a real sense of a kind of a new parliament in all senses. So there is that optimism, but I think we're all very concerned that we don't rush it, you know, yeah. we don't do too much too soon, and that we're not caught with um, obviously worst case scenarios such as uh, strains that, uh, that come in. Uh, to the country that uh, that could set back our, our progress. Let's talk politics around it as well, Rachel and Pam. First, the the, the prime minister has announced that there'll be a, a, a an examination, a review, an inquiry into basically the handling by his government in in the spring. The first minister in Scotland has already signalled she's willing to have contributions to that, but also a distinctive Scottish uh, inquiry as well. Uh, Rachel Hamilton, do, do you think there are questions to be asked? And questions to be answered, more more importantly, both north and south of the border, regarding the handling of the, the coronavirus uh, uh, pandemic? Yes, I mean, there were concerns, uh, weren't there, on either side regarding the uh, availability of PPE, um, the kind of discharge of elderly people into care home settings here in Scotland. That was an issue as well. And I had a lot of work to do around that. I think yeah. the Prime Minister yeah. has said that he will welcome uh, an inquiry next spring. And I think that's important also because we don't want to put pressure on the people who we are still relying on effectively, particularly, you know, doctors and uh, nursing staff. And so I think it is important to look back on this. I don't think we've reflected enough in the past, to be quite honest, when we've when we've had um, issues not as serious as this, of course, and to see what we could have done better and perhaps learn the lessons so that we can take forward some of those lessons in the future, if God forbid this ever happens again. At one point, Labour was was agitating for the inquiry to be getting underway almost immediately. Have, have you sort of perhaps, as a collective party, gained a bit of patience? Do you accept that maybe you know tackle the virus first and then and then hold the inquiry along the maybe maybe roughly the timetable the PM is suggesting? I think getting something done about it quickly was always was always the case because um, there were so many deaths, there were so many people yeah. who were who were let down. The inequalities across across the country and who was dying and who was most impacted on, particularly people in precarious work or people who um, are living in poverty, disabled people, people with learning disabilities. Reality is we had to get things right in terms of making sure that we did everything in our NHS, yeah. we did everything across the board to control the virus as best we can. And I think the, the inquiry itself is going to be really welcome. What, what I think is incredibly important, though, is that the person who chairs that and who leads that inquiry um, has the, the trust and faith um, and support of um, cross-party for a start, but also of the public, because that's going to be incredible, incredibly important. I also think it's important that the inquiry looks beyond um, how we handled the immediate sort of virus transmission or viral transmission, but actually, what what was what was the state of play before this? So when the NHS when when we came into the pandemic, what had we done to prepare for something like this? What what was the 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 readiness of our NHS and health and social care service? Yeah, yeah, okay, Ke- Kevin. The, the 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 first minister has already expressed um, her, her deep sorrow about the issue of the transfer into. Care homes. Gene Freeman indeed talked of it being being the, the former health secretary talked of it being a, a, a mistake. Actually, she's still health secretary, isn't she? And until a new one is, is appointed, but where, where do you think that that sits in this the, the review of of decisions taken in Scotland, Kevin Pringle? 
think it's uh, really at the heart of, of the whole thing. Um, Pam talked about the, the spread of the virus. And obviously, it happened to such an extent within our care sector. So it's going to be really um, one of the most important aspects of the inquiry into this. And, and of course, that's also feeding into the business of this parliament that's just going to yes. get down to its business um, in the next few days in the sense that one of the big policy issues that, that we're going to be looking at is uh, the establishment of a national care service. And there's going to yeah. be a, a huge debate about that. But that, not not entirely, because um, certainly I think Labour have been campaigning on this issue for about a decade, I think. Um, but it, it was one of these issues that, in, in light of the circumstances of the pandemic, it became not just a and other policy debate. It, it really quite rightly, completely understandably, yeah. rose to the, to the top of the political agenda. And yeah. there, I, I suspect... People, go, people yeah, going into a, a care home and, and care so, so, treatment and so, attention. Yeah, yeah so I think it's really, really important for the for the inquiry, really important for the, the wider policy debate. I think maybe another point on the inquiry as well, yeah. is obviously it's important when it begins, but yeah. it's also important when it ends. It needs to take as long as necessary to do its business, but okay. clearly there'd be some concern. If we're would you expect a separate Scottish inquiry or an inquiry in Scotland feeding into the, the, the UK inquiry? What would you expect? Um, I think there would be, you know, so many of the aspects of dealing with the, the pandemic were devolved, and that was yes. clear when, you know... And, and the First Minister has said, regardless of what happens at a UK level, there will be Scottish investigation. And, and I think that's necessary because clearly, as well as the issues to do with the care sector, there are issues to do with, you know, for example, education. Yeah, well, well I'm going to talk about... Clearly, the, the health aspect. So I think so many of the aspects of it were, were devolved that, yes, that would I be... I want to bring that in right away with Alastair Grant. Alastair, we heard in the last few days talking about stress among pupils in the education sector. We've got one health board, Edish Eston, Fries and Galloway. I'm sure the others are saying the same, talking about pressure with a, a, you know, a, a backlog of cases because of the focus upon COVID. Talk about these things, education uh, and health service, uh, you know, being, being areas and, and you know, sports and the arts, all of these things, areas that, that, are, that, that are affected and afflicted by coronavirus. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think these are going to be some of the, the most defining issues in the first you know, months and years of this new Scottish Parliament. There's just so many different aspects to the impact of the pandemic and the impact on education and children, and the impact on the health service. I think there's things the government's going to have to focus on. I think they're very aware of that themselves. And there were problems existing or perceived problems of how the government was handling education and health before the pandemic. And so coronavirus has kind of exacerbated certain issues. And I think the cultural sector will be an extremely important area as well. I mean, there's been a lot of, you know, understandable happiness about the, the changes on the May, May 17th coming up about you know being able to ha have a drink indoors in a, a, a yeah. public restaurant or hugging your family and friends for the first time in months but at the same time you're know, saying it's not serious to open with with uh, that that degree of social distancing exactly yeah and we, we still don't have a date for for nightclubs for example uh -huh. for uh, for big venues to to bring back to bring are, back are you a regular visitor to nightclubs Alistair I wouldn't have seen you as, as one, of the, <laughs> one of that's that scene you know I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm never out of them, but but uh, you know. sometimes, sometimes, but probably whatever. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. But, right, to, to, get, to get serious again for a moment, Rachel Hamilton, you, your your party has been very concerned about the, the NHS, but also particularly concerned about the the problems that you see arising in the education sector. Uh, yes, I mean, I think Alistair's absolutely right. I think you know there were issues prior to the pandemic with regards to um, our concern around the number of teachers. Um, the uh, pupil to teacher ratio, um, the fact that one in four kids live in poverty and that 
now we're seeing an exacerbation of that because of course kids are now in the position where they've lost a lot of face-to-face learning um, and we need to resource uh, that to get them back into that catch-up situation. We're very keen on a national tutoring programme, as mm-hmm. you know, and we're also keen to restore those teacher numbers. And I know that obviously there, were, there was an attempt to do that by the SNP during uh, the COVID pandemic, but we're still around about 1,700 teachers uh, behind. Crit- critics of your party might say that, you know, if you're talking about re- relative poverty, that isn't exactly helped by a decade and more of, of austerity from the UK government and, uh, con- and constraints upon welfare benefits. Well, I mean, when you talk about welfare benefits, Rishi Sunak, uh, you know, increased uh, the universal credit to £20 per week and extended that for uh, another six months, which was an important intervention. And I think now we're seeing around about uh, 500,000 uh, people on universal credit in Scotland. I think the important thing here is to ensure that we have some sort of strategy with regards to what we're talking about as an enterprise bill. We want to protect jobs um, and we want to create jobs. We want to skill people up. We want to retrain to rebuild. And I think that's important is to address very urgently actually, you know, the the situation that we might find ourselves with um, sort of furlough being taken away and the jobs market being affected in terms of uh, employment in Scotland. There's very important things there, but you're right to to sort of bring up the fact that I think cross-party, we, you know, need to go into this next parliament absolutely putting children first in terms of their their prioritising of that catch-up. Let's let's bring in Pam Duncan Glancy. Pam, on these maybe maybe on these come to the economy in a minute, but these issues of education and the NHS, Labour really has pursued these uh, rather vigorously. So, um, I mean, it, I think everybody's aware of of the, the the shambles really that that happens with the education system last year, and so many children and young people um, were seriously let down, particularly in terms of being graded on the basis of their postcode rather than their ability. And so that's something that we cannot allow to happen again. And I sincerely hope that the government um, this time round and and cross party actually agreement would be helpful. Um, didn't, didn't ministers say that they learn from that and there'll be no no use of that that approach in the, in future? Yeah, they did, but then, but then what they what they've proposed looks like exams um, in in any other name, basically. So I'm not. You have I'm to not, assess yeah. pupils. You have to assess pupils in some way. You can't just say you're an A, you're a B, you're you're an A, you're an A, 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 you're a B. You've you've got to assess them in in some way. Teachers have got to base that assessment upon something, don't they? Of course they do, but they certainly can't be basing that assessment on postcodes. And I think they have to base it on the advice that that teachers have given and that parents have given. On the NHS, I think it's um, incredibly important for us to to think about how we're going to support the workforce because as we get our our screening services, our cancer services, our elective surgery and all of that back on track, the same people who have just got us through probably the most difficult year the NHS has faced in its history um, are now going to have to also help us through Still that, because we're still in the pandemic, it's still there, um, coronavirus still, um, is still yes. affecting people and people are still dying, but we're going to have to rely on the same people to get us through the next part. So we need to make sure that our NHS workers and our care workers are paid properly, that they get breaks, that we support them and give them the resilience that they need and support that they need to be able to take us through the next stage of this. Kevin, do you think that the Scottish ministers are going to face particularly tough questions really on the NHS, tough questions generally, for goodness sake, it's a really difficult period. But tough questions on the NHS, perhaps particularly tough questions on the question of the issue of pupils being stressed out and 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 anxious and worried about their future in education. I think inevitably um, we saw this uh, a year ago 
I find it quite interesting in that clearly education's devolved, if you like, the four constituent parts of the UK, but uh, notwithstanding that devolution of decision-making, it seemed that the same decisions were taken in all four jurisdictions in terms of, you know, the algorithmic approach and, you know, the, the concerns that, that Pam raised about how that worked out. And then, of course, one by one, kind of domino effect, each uh, government in each part of the UK abandoned that quite rightly abandoned that in, in favour of, of teacher assessment. And it's the it's the it's the debate which you know you you've you've referred to, Brian, about yes, we're going with teacher assessment, but how do teachers arrive at an assessment? I think certainly there is an opportunity to learn from this, not just for the immediate period of the crisis, but but for the longer term about where exams loom or, or should loom in that overall assessment of student performance in the sense that a teacher can you know set an exam the same exam can be set for for, for pupils in different schools in different places but okay. equally teachers can can look at the results clearly factor the results in but also consider the situation that for very many young people they're coming from family situations home situations just the kind of quality of the home that they may live in, which are you know dramatically different for for people from more affluent backgrounds, maybe just literally nowhere to study. So I mean, the Scottish government has made progress on that, but they they can see that that progress has been really slow by comparison. I think that's right, but, but the point is, by rather than just having a kind of a, 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 a totally kind of assessment exam results basis for determining grades, then with teacher assessment, you can actually take into account the the fact that people are coming from much much. Uh, more disadvantaged backgrounds than others and factor that in uh, to the awarding of grades in a sense that would equalise the situation for young people regardless of their, 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 uh, of, of their, um, of their domestic uh, situation, the, the, you know, the, the, the wealth of the, the family that, that, that they come from. So I think we could do that, but that wouldn't just, for me, that wouldn't just yeah. be something to think about for now. That would be something to think about, you know, on a, on a much longer Yeah, Brian, Brian, I, I, yeah, I, I think, think that's that. an important point because actually... We've all felt slightly uncomfortable, I would say, with that sort of um, Scottish in index of multiple deprivation where, um, you know, we, the teachers had no choice at the time. Of course, they didn't. And um, they did the best that they possibly could when they abandoned the algorithms um, associated with um, exam assessments. And I think the fact that kids from poorer areas ended up being marked, I suppose, more steeply than those um, from wealthier backgrounds kind of really highlighted that perhaps there is an issue there and that um you know the this sort of simd doesn't really work um, do you you think do you think uh uh, rachel and and then pam perhaps there's been some suggestion from some quarters that we should abandon external exams altogether they put too much stress and and strain upon pupils and the other alternative argument is yeah but they're needed by universities they're needed by employers What, what do you make of do we need to return to the hires basically rachel when, when it's possible and then pam rachel first well i think that uh, obviously, the university situation where today we're hearing that uh, possibly universities are going to increase the requirements for grades and hires um, for entry into the university because of the situation that has occurred. Uh-huh. Um, so so therefore, we're then squeezing um, young people out from going into uh, you, you know that education setting. So yes. I, I don't think we're getting this right, to be quite honest. And I think. Yes, the pandemic has played part in this, but we still are in a situation where we're not getting kids from poorer backgrounds into universities as much as um, 
we'd like to. Thanks, there's, thanks there's, that, still, there's still that inequality. Thanks for that, Pam. What do you make of that? Um, and there is there is a there is a huge inequality, but part of that it's not all down to the education system. But of course, it is part um, that that is part, and the way that the kids are examined, and the way that they're tested, um, is crucial to that. But we also have to look at the the poverty related attainment gap as well. And actually, that's something that I think we really do need to turn our attentions to as well. So so we need to look at how we're going to test pupils in the future. And I don't think it's I don't think the answer to to exams is but unis require them because then surely we work with unis to see what else they might require. Um, exams have, have kind of locked people out of accessing um, university or college in the past for various reasons. So it's, I, I actually think we need to take this moment to look at how we do things. And if, if anything positive has come out of this pandemic, it's that we can be innovative when we have to be, and that it's given us pause for thought where we've had to do this differently. But, so but the, uni- the universities, the universities are, you know, they're, they're, they're passing people with, with degrees in subjects like law, and engineering and medicine. And if you're going to be hiring people to be to be doctors, lawyers, and engineers, you need to know that they are qualified as doctors, lawyers, and engineers. And don't you need to know the same when they are entering those courses? You need to know whether they can actually perform to, to a, a, a certain acceptable level of skill, not just that they're, you know, uh, that they've, they've attained some advantage in other ways. You need to test those skills, don't you? Absolutely. And that's that's something that we need to work together with pupils, with families, with teachers and with universities and colleges to get that right. The, the point, the, I guess the point I'm making is that it doesn't have to be the way it is currently or the way it was before before COVID. We need to, we can take this opportunity to say, right, how can we actually do this differently? And yes, I get there. There has to be benchmarking. Of course, there does. Yes. But there are different ways to do this. We should take the moment and not miss it to change let's, that. Let's, let's, there let's, are examples, Brian, yeah, please, Kevin, yeah. university application where... Uh, young people get to university with lower grades because of yep. the, you know, based because of the, the disadvantaged background, and the evidence is that they do just as well. There. Uh, so, so the you know the issue here is, you know, exams are really the kind of you know it's the piece of paper, it's the access to be able yep. to go in the first place. They, if people can go, then the evidence is that they do very very well. Okay. Uh, you know, based upon the uh, upon these examples of people getting to university Thanks. with lower grades because of the, the, the disadvantage of... Yeah, and, let, and let's not forget that a university isn't everything. You know, we uh, we know that apprenticeship work and uh, it's an important route uh, to get into the job market. And uh, the Scottish Conservatives want to see uh, a demand-led uh, apprenticeship and they also want to see an education guarantee to the age of 18, whatever okay, let, it might let's, be. Let's talk, about the, let's talk about the job market. Let's talk about the economy. Al- Alistair, we've got some figures out saying UK economy shrank by 1.5% in the first three months of 2021, but there's some optimism as well, isn't there? This, the, you know, for the, the the medium to longer term. Yeah, well, I think the, the economy is just, you know, we've talked about education and health. The economy is the next big issue, I suppose. We've had the we've had the pandemic, the impact that's had. We had the job job uh, the furlough scheme, uh, which will be coming to an end later this year. So I think de- dealing with these things is going to be the other major thing the government's going to have to deal with. Uh, yeah. And I think the economy and and its related um, aspect of public spending as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, we've had obviously the furlough scheme kind of ties in with the issues around. I mean, the other big issue that I suppose we've not talked about yet, I don't know if we're going to come on to it, is the kind of constitutional debate. We'll do that in a minute. Yes. (laughs) And how these things kind of tie in together. Let's 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 bring in Kevin Pringle. Kevin, the 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 um, each of the parties promising in various ways to freeze income tax, each of the parties promising increased expenditure, particularly on the health service and education. Does that add up? 
Well, we, we will see. I mean, all, all the politicians through the campaign all insisted that it all did add up and, you know, all, all, all based upon the resources that will be available. Um, I suppose the, the big question which uh, there was reference to in the Queen's speech yesterday was the uh, the commitment to um, restoring the public finances to a sustainable basis. Um, these were the words. We don't know precisely what that means. Obviously, concerns that, um, or at least questions as to whether that means a, uh, if you like, a return to the um, to the austerity that characterised the the period after after the financial crash. In which case, obviously, all bets are off for the amount of money that would be available. So, uh, it, it's uncertain in that sense. It's it, it is all available and affordable as we speak, uh, but things could change uh, pretty quickly, pretty dramatically. If the uh, decision taken at Westminster was to, you know, obviously want to get to that sustainable uh, position in a way that I think most people in Scotland would uh, would 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 strongly strongly oppose by by uh, returning to austerity. And that Rachel, Rachel, we talking numbers. about a, a return to UK austerity in your view? And would that have a backwash in Scotland if we did? Well, austerity um, can be uh, viewed in in many ways, and one of the the ways I would see it that it wasn't good the economy is that it puts pressure on public services in terms of uh, health and well-being. And I think, um, you know, we, we know that the UK government have given, given unprecedented support to the Scottish government with furlough and VAT cuts and uh, income support to self-employed, um, business back loans, uh, equating to around about 23 billion. Uh, we also know that uh, the Scottish economy isn't going to recover uh, until um, back pre-pandemic levels until around 2024. Mm -hmm. So there's going to have to be a concerted effort here in terms of ensuring that we protect jobs, but as well as creating jobs. And I think that's going to be a very uh, difficult ask right now, uh, particularly in the climate. But as we see uh, retail shops and other businesses start up again, I think there is an opportunity there that that we need to look at to ensure that we actually, you know, turbocharge our growth and get back to where we'd like to be, because obviously there is pressure on public services right now, and we can't have good public services unless we have a good economy. Let's bring in Pam. Yeah, um, I, I find it. I'm not sure that listeners will be will be um, entirely convinced that that we're, we're in safe hands um, when it comes to that. And I get I get that the furlough um, the furlough scheme ploughed um, a, a lot of money, um, but it had to do that. Um, and I think you said earlier on, Rachel, that um, you know furlough could be taken away. I mean, these are things that you, that that are political choices, and it's incredibly important that we that we learn from the experiences of the past. Austerity did not work. Um, it didn't work for public services, as being said, and it didn't work for individuals. But also we need to think about the people who were working in precarious work before the pandemic, the people that worked in precarious work during it, and that unless we take action on zero hours contracts, on paying the living wage, using every single lever we have, such as um, business support funds being tied to, to um, good employment practices and better pay, unless we do all of that, then we're not going to really be putting money in people's pockets. But and the you- other thing it would be, it would be diff- um, we would really need to recognise today as well, um, that as we speak, I think approximately 479 people in Glasgow are about to lose their jobs in the McVitie's factory. Yeah. Now that is an example of um, the sort of the sort of decisions that, are, if they are taken, are going to leave hundreds of people without work, without funding, without support. And where are the jobs going to be? Because I don't, I'm not sure where. Um, I'm not sure sure I've heard of any manufacturing jobs being recreated in that particular do, do area ex- anytime soon. 
Forgive me, do you accept um, Rachel Hamilton's point that, that if you are to build public spending and public services over a period, you have to have growth in the, the, the wider economy? You have to have the creation of growth in the wider economy to sustain that. Well, there, of course there does need to be, but you also need to have the, the political will to spend the fund, uh, to spend the money that you take through tax um, and also to make sure that you get the money from tax, um, from tax that you should be getting. So, for example, like online giants such as Amazon. So, it's yes, there, there needs to be growth, of course there does, but it's also about using that growth for public good um, and that's where we need to be putting pressure on this time, I think, in, par- in Parliament to make sure that where there is, if there is growth in this period, that it gets reinvested right back into our public services so that we have the, the sort of Scotland that we all know we want and the, the sort of Scotland where everyone can flourish. Kevin, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think I think that's right. It, it's really a, a question of the, the, the period over which public finances are restored to, quotes, sustainability. Because the, the issue after the financial crash was that that was done or attempted to be done far too quickly. And as Pam said, it actually was counterproductive because it just made the economy weaker, which made revenue a weaker as as well, which which meant that the deficits carried on for longer. So um, yeah, I think learning the lesson of that uh, would be to seek to do that over a longer period of time rather than a shorter period of time, which I think is more sustainable from the, a public finance perspective. But uh, more importantly, is better for individuals better for public services. But that, that, that's the debate, and there's different views there. But ultimately. That sort of decision is taken at Westminster and people yeah. in Scotland can have a view on that, but we can't obviously control that for as long as that sort of decision is taken by... Uh, Ra- 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 forgive me, Rachel Hamill, do you accept that lessons need to be learned from the, what is being suggested there, a mistaken approach by George Osborne and others after the, the, the banking crash of 2008? Well, I think that the Conservative government is a Conservative government unlike uh, any other previous Conservative government. So... I mean, we we uh, obviously took over from um, a Labour government, and uh, you know, I think at the time um, the, the the Conservatives had a kind of a, a set uh, program in terms of the um, economy. But now, I think the, the we can see a change in the UK government. We can see the change in their approach in the way that there has been a sort of a I suppose, an intervention from the government. We tended to have the value of being a small uh, government, uh, but now we're sort of a more of a large government because of the interventions that have been made. So there can't be be anything, there can't be criticism It shouldn't have taken a pandemic. It shouldn't have taken a pandemic to support. It shouldn't have taken a pandemic to provide the support um, for public services, the support for wages, the support for... Um, for the NHS, it shouldn't have taken a pandemic to get all of that in place. And I know I, I get that, and it's quite important for for people to say, oh, but it's a different it's a different type of conservative government. The people who, for example, missed out on the self employed support grants, the people who um, did not get the twenty pounds uplift in legacy benefits from um, the UK government, those people think it's the same old Tories. And actually, what we need to be doing is looking at where we've made the mistakes in the past and do this differently. Uh, well, I think perhaps. Um, uh, uh, I mean, I don't want to go too hard on Pam here. She's brand new, but she seems very competent. So well done, well Pam. But <laughs> um, but I mean, this is this is the problem with Labour. And this is why Labour have gone down in um, the terms of their vote share and the number of seats, because um, it, you've got to recognise that, you know, before the pandemic, there was a, an increase in the Scotland's budget of, of 1.5 billion. And it's about actually putting the criticism at the door of the SNP government who choose and can choose the policies 
and, and have got the ability with the devolved competency to fund councils fairly, for example. You know, we, why, why is Labour criticising a Conservative government when the SNP have policy choices that they can make? And, and I think in, that the, 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 the issue rest lies rest at their door. Also hold them to account to Rachel. continue. Bring it, bring in Kevin Pringle. It's it's all your party's fault. Uh, well, that that goes with being in in government, um, and of course we're in this uh, pretty extraordinary position where the SNP government has been in office for fourteen years. Usually, uh, in most democracies, by this time, then the government will get sick of them by that time. Yeah. So, but I think you know, yeah, I think that it's part and parcel of being in government. It's part and parcel of accountability. It just so happens that we've got this. Very elongated period, which yeah. you know, no sign of ending yet. That that party is going to be the SNP for the foreseeable future, but but certainly scrutiny, certainly accountability, absolutely important. And I do think going back to what I said at the beginning, the fact you've got this big, big uh, infusion of brand new MSPs, I think it'll add an awful lot of energy actually to that uh, crucial well, aspect of accountability. We're going to be talking about energy, talking about the future. Alistair Grant, uh, is the, does the future, does the foreseeable future include NDREF too? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't uh, know who's going to answer that question. I mean, certainly Nicola Sturgeon has said that she wants to hold it in the first half of this parliamentary term, which would take us up to the end of 2023. Uh, I mean, I personally think it'd be, it seems unlikely that we'd have one in that timescale. Uh, there's so much kind of debate to happen before then. There's, um, you know, if Boris Johnson says no to NDREF too, which it seems likely he will, uh, we could be heading for a constitutional clash in the courts, so it's, it's hard to tell where this is going to go. Let's go to Rachel Hamilton. Rachel Hamilton does the, does the, 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 the first minister who will be returned to office next week, Nicola Sturgeon. Does she have a mandate to go ahead with a referendum on independence? Well, I mean, we've got to look at the makeup of the constituency seats and more unionist voters. Uh, a larger proportion of unionist voters voted uh, for um those, you know, Labour seats, Liberal Democrats and Conservative yeah. seats. And on, I think on, the list, on, the list, on the list, it's the other well, way around. And the constituents are only like that because the Greens didn't stand in very yes, many seats. It, yes, but it's important to recognise that, um, you know, Nicola Sturgeon did say that she wasn't going to uh, call a second independence referendum. But then before the votes were even counted, she got to the podium and stated, you know, that that was her intention. So I think that a lot of people who actually voted for the SNP will be wondering what they actually had voted for. And um, I think the other... They, they, come on, they, they, they scarcely disguise their support for independence and for achieving that via referendum. They, she didn't exactly hide that during the campaign. Well, you know, we've got to also look at um, some of the polls that were out. Um, you know, there was an opinion poll that showed only a third of voters um, think that leaving the UK is an urgent priority. And, and of the last 10 opinion polls, the yes group was only ahead yeah. in one of them. So that's forget, important to recognise. Forgive me, does she have a mandate or not? Does she have a mandate to not, not, not next year? Well, she doesn't year, have a mandate. She's, she must be incredibly disappointed. She's hardly made any headway. She has a net gain of one. And that must be a huge disappointment to her. Um, as the leader of the SNP. And she's got to rely on the Greens again. And that's going to make her minority government in quite a difficult position, I would say, because possibly moving into difficult territory um, with the, the perhaps some of the negotiations that she might have to mm. do with um, Patrick Harvey and Lorna Slater, perhaps there will be uh, policy proposals that Pam. might not sit comfortably with their own voters, with the SNP voters. Thanks for that. Pam Duncan Glancy, is there a, a mandate in this current parliament of the of the Scottish the current session of the Scottish Parliament 
for a referendum on independence for India Ref 2? I think what there is clearly a mandate for is a focus on getting our NHS back on track, protecting jobs, ensuring people have more money in their pocket, um, and trying to um, make dense, massive dents in reducing child poverty. Yeah, we, 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 accept, we, 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 we hear all of that. Is there a mandate for a referendum on independence? Labour won't tell you. Is let well, well <laughs> let, 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 let's let, let's let's find out. Pam, is there a mandate for a referendum on independence? I, I think I've, I've said this before, Brian, and I'll say it again. I got into I got into politics because I want to do things to to improve our NHS. I want to improve mm-hmm. social care. Yeah, I want I'm to hearing. make sure people have more money in their pockets. I'm not hearing an answer. Is, is there a is there a is there a mandate for a referendum on independence? We didn't. That that was we had an election. We didn't have a referendum, and um, we so we don't we we didn't ask that on the ballot paper. A referendum was not on the ballot paper. And uh-huh. um, what was on the ballot paper were jobs, the NHS, education, and getting all of those things back on. Oh, come on, party, party names and individuals are on the ballot paper, not those. They, they, you, you, why won't you say whether there's a mandate for a referendum? Not, 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 not now, not next year, maybe not even the year after. Down the line, is there a mandate for this referendum to be held again? There wasn't a, a majority for that. But at this moment in time, I honestly think we need to be focusing on getting ourselves through this, through the pandemic and focusing on the recovery. Evan Pringle. Well, that, that's right. Uh, I think everybody agrees with that. Um, but as to whether there's a mandate, well, the answer is yes. I like to say yes, but clearly it is yes. Um, I also think we make a mistake if we compare or if we interpret Holyrood election results according to Westminster criteria. The whole point of the electoral system that we've got in the Scottish Parliament is we want to have a non-majoritarian culture. Uh, so therefore, the electoral system threw up a, a government elected very clearly. It won 85% of the constituency seats. Uh, in the Scottish Parliament, but across the two parties that had a referendum in their manifestos, the SNP and the Greens, then... But, but on both con- Kevin, on both the constituency and the list votes, Scotland is 50-50 in supporting parties of the Union and parties of independence. How is that a, 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 a firm, silver, golden mandate for, for well, going ahead with a referendum? It, it, election when, when, results, when, when your party said it would be once in a generation? Yeah, but election, election results are determined by... Uh, by candidates elected. That's how you measure mm-hmm. what's happened in an election. Votes cast directly are how you measure the results of referendums. So if we want to put that issue to the test, the, the 50-50 issue, then that's done through a referendum. So even just drawing attention to that fact would actually point to the logic of settling this through a referendum. I, I but think, in terms I of the election... I, I can't see you, but I can hear heads shaking. Pam Duncan yeah. Glancy and then mm-hmm. Rachel Hamilton. I was just going to say, Brian, I think you make a really good point there because it actually shows that the country is actually divided on that issue, which makes it very, very difficult. And we cannot focus in that division if we are to focus on on the recovery. And that's why I think we need to do that first. Rachel Hamilton. Oh, I mean, I'm going to say, aren't I, that the, the democratic will of the people was demonstrated in 2014. And that opinion hasn't really moved until uh, since um, 2014. And I mean, I've got to agree if we're being sensible about this, that voters uh, have said that time and time again in the last sort of six months that we need to ensure that we protect jobs and livelihoods and that we get things up and running in terms of cancer screening and, you know, cancelled operations and all the other things. And, you know, it's all very well saying, you know, to Pam, yes, this isn't, uh, you know, this isn't an answer, but actually it is an answer because it is absolutely what we need, need to be focusing on. Um, because that's what the public expect. Can you imagine if we went into this ridiculous constitutional crisis yet again, um, pitting each other against 
one another and becoming a, a, device, a divided country again. And I think this is the time that we could actually come together mm-hmm. and work together. Because to be honest, when we are distracted with this obsession that the SNP have about separating the country, when I don't agree with Kevin Pringle, we, they don't have a mandate. They don't. They might be the largest party. They are a minority party propped up by the Greens. Kevin, Kevin, a very without, without a time, folks. Kevin, a very brief final word for, for, from you. I think the only way really to resolve this, there's going to be the argument in election after election after election. And in actual fact, you know, the SNP is doing very well in election after election after election. I think the only way to really break the logjam is actually to have the referendum. And then one way or another, that is it. And then politics can that, focus that is it. If the entirely SNP lose, on, that's it. on the things that we all want to. If the SNP lose, that's it. You'd give up the aim of, it, of independence? I, personally, I, I, I believe that to, to be the case, which is why I think... We're also told that in 2014, though, Kevin. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, Kevin, go on, go on. Well, I, I, believe, I believe that. That's my, my personal belief. You can look at international examples in Quebec where, in where Quebec, that's been yeah, the case. So if, if people believe, and they're absolutely genuine, I'm sure, in the belief that the, that the case for the union would prevail, and I think the way to... This is it to sort of break the logjam here would be therefore to have the referendum. Oops. Both sides would go into it very confident. I would be very confident that yes, we'd win. Um, but if there's an objection to this always being there, but it's always there because people are always voting for the party that advocates it in terms of being the main party in Scotland, then I think the way to consensually, democratically at least resolve the issue would be to put it to the people in a referendum during the term of the Scottish Parliament. A huge thank you from me to all who have participated, to Rachel Hamilton, to Kevin Pringle, to Pam Duncan Glancy, to Alistair Grant. Huge thanks to everyone who's listening to this podcast on whatever uh, uh, means you, 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 you can choose. It's been great. To the, to the MSPs, have a wonderful Parliament ahead. And to all of you from me, Brian Taylor, to the new. This podcast was brought to you by The Herald. We're giving you the chance to get exclusive access to even more insight, analysis and opinion with a Herald subscription. Take 20% off an annual rate with the code HERALDNEW2021. This offer is for new subscribers only and is only available with the promotional code. Subscriptions will renew at the standard rate unless cancelled. And sign up to our free evening politics newsletter, Unspun, to get snap analysis from some of our top contributors every day. Head to heraldscotland.com for the details.